I'm sure that for most of you, uh, or if not everybody in the room, Rabbi Bravender needs a little introduction, but I'm going to give a one anyway. Uh, so, a graduate of Yeshiva University and the holder of a doctorate in Semitic languages from the Hebrew University of Yerushalayim, Rabbi Bravender founded Yeshivat Hamiftar and Michalat Bruria, now known as Midrashat Lindenbaum where he revolutionized women's Torah study by introducing in-depth textual study in Talmud to women's learning, which paved the way for other yeshiva-style institutions for women. And those schools, as you know, I'm sure, merged with or, uh, or Torah Stone institutions where Rabbi Ravinder served as dean and rosh yeshiva. And I have to say, as one who spent her post-high school year in yeshiva at Ravinder's, which is what we still called it in those days, I count myself among the many in this room who have benefited directly from uh, his innovations in Torah learning. Um, and it's a pleasure to be able to be Lahakir to be Makir Mikiratov. All right, two. Okay, I'm going to skip that word. <laughs> and acknowledge my gratitude uh, for the good that Reverend Ravinder has brought to us. So, I, um, of course, that work has continued. Uh, he's now president of ATI, the Academy for Torah Initiatives in Directions in Jewish Education, which he founded in 1999, and whose mission is to train the future leadership of Jewish education. And also uh, through his work as Rosh Yeshiva of Web Yeshiva, uh, which is a fully interactive internet-based yeshiva offering ongoing shiurim to men and women. So we're pl- privileged to have the opportunity to learn with a leader who for so long has stood at the forefront of Torah education, expanding access and broadening the conversation, and we look forward to a conversation about Echa. So. Wow, thanks. <laughs> oh, no. Hello. 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 Okay. I want to thank Ross Farron for the introduction. It's always interesting to listen to the Hespit. (laughs) And you know that the Hespit is always better than real life. And I was happy in my lifetime to have the opportunity to teach people Torah. And I'm glad to hear that it was uh, well regarded and well received. It's wonderful. Uh, All the rest of it is okay, but you know, teaching Torah is what I do. I would like to say a few words about Tish Ab'av. Now, really, what I found and find annoying about Tish Ab'av, I mean, it's like sort of a confession, is the popularity of the day. You know, when I was a kid, I won't tell you when that was exactly. We went to shul on Tishabab in the morning. And it took about a half hour to say keynote. A half hour. We had these keynote books, you know, these little soft-covered books. Hebrew Publishing Company. Keynote. All it had was Hebrew words in it. An endless stream of Hebrew words. None of which was comprehensible to anybody who was saying keynote. And so obviously, there was hardly any point to let this part of Davening go more than about a half hour. And we managed to do it in a half hour. Now from the time that I was a kid in the shul that I attended in Brooklyn, until today... A lot of things have happened. Some of them you know are directly the responsibility of Rabbi Soloveitchik, Zichrona Levrocha, here in Boston. Because you know that Rabbi Soloveitchik decided one day that he was going to say keynote. He, meaning not privately, but publicly. He would say keynote. And I attended one of these keynote sessions that Rabbi Soloveitchik organized in the Maimonides synagogue, whatever it happened to look like in those days, I don't, I don't remember exactly. And Rabbi Soloveitchik sat there, it was like an interesting uh, thing, Rabbi Soloveitchik sat on a chair, he did not sit on the floor, and people sat around him. But the first row of the people sat around him in order to get into the first row, 
of the people who sat around Soloveitchik, you had, Rabbi Soloveitchik, you had to be a doctor. Only doctors were allowed in the first row. And it seemed to me that all the various disciplines of modern medicine were represented. There were all these doctors sitting around. Everybody had a beeper. In those days, that was like a big deal. So, you like you wore your beeper on your shirt or something. You know. That's how you knew you were a doctor. I mean, no one else had a beeper. And then every time Rabbi Salvatore coughed, you know, an internist jumped up, an oral surgeon, and you know, and they like. And then he would have to wave them away. And this went on. And Rabbi Soloveitchik taught keynote from approximately 9 o'clock in the morning until 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And somehow, we were going crazy. You know, like, who could sit so long? We have to really be. But he, Rabbi Soloveitchik, was undaunted. He just kept going kept going and going and going. And so Rabbi Soloveitchik changed keynote. He changed keynote from something that was not possible to do to something that was exhilarating. Not just possible, but it was something that, that could only be done with Rabbi Soloveitchik. Afterwards, he did this for a few years. I'm not sure exactly how much the people, you know, people who are interested in, you know, those kinds of things will tell me. But as a result, after the Ptira, after Rabbi Soloveitchik died, you suddenly find showing up in different places people who are leading keynote for many, many hours of Tisha B'Av. I... Uh, also do this amazingly enough I do it on the web yeshiva on the web yeshiva in the morning I do it twice on Tisha B'Av I do it in a shul in Yerushalayim it means I start at uh, 8 o'clock in the morning I do it till about 1 so you can figure out the hours they're not so good for Boston 8 o'clock Yerushalayim till 1 o'clock in the morning uh, then I do it again for Boston. I do it from 4 o'clock in the afternoon to 7 o'clock at night. I do it on the Web Yeshiva. The Web Yeshiva is an internet connection between a teacher and all the students that have to come. We can have like 200 people coming to the Sheyur. I do it once a year. There's no prior registration. You can just get on, or you, you know, you go and Google Web Yeshiva, I have these cards to tell you what to do, and you can listen, or you can go someplace local where they do it, but I'm saying it was a revolution. People today want to know what keynote are about, and I think that that's great, and I think the cause of that the person who made the difference was, of course, Rabbi Salvechik Zichrona here in Boston. Here in Boston. It happened. And this created, this created a kind of a new thing, whereas, you know, in the olden times, people used to just wait for Tish Abba'av to end. Especially, you know, it's in the summer. And in... Uh, in America and in Israel, where the summer, it is the summer. So the day is very long. And Tisha B'Av ends very late. The idea that there's some avodah, there's some service of the heart that has to be done on Tisha B'Av is a remarkable thing. Because even though the Shulchan Aruch is full of the halachot of Tisha B'Av, the Shulchan Aruch does not tell us how to take up the time on Tisha B'Av. For that, we had to wait for Rabbi Salavetri to give us this directive. And even though we're not exactly, we don't do it as well, and we're not as powerful teachers as Rabbi Salavetri was, nevertheless, we follow his lead, those of us who do it, and they do it, you know, it's done in many places 
in many different ways by many different rabbis and I would suggest that on Tisha B'Av, those of you can find a place where the uh, keynote are being learned and taught and said and if you can you can join us at the web yeshiva but this flowering of interest of Tisha B'Av nevertheless uh, troubles me I mean Tisha B'Av is not just the day of the Churban Beit HaMikdash you know and that's in this Gemara that I quote here in, that's on the page in Ta'anit which we, we don't have time I mean I'm not going to learn the Gemara but I, you know very well that Tisha B'Av and that's what the Gemara says that Tisha B'Av is the day of the rejection of Eretz Yisrael. Right when the spies came back from Eretz Yisrael and they cried, all of the Nezot cried, where are you taking us? Where are you sending us? Right, Zakharish Baruch Hu said, if you see at the end of this, of the, the Hebrew, um, hang on a second. Right, the Eida, the people, the community, they were all crying. This is what it says in the Gemara. Erev Tisha Be'av Haya. When were they crying? When were they crying? They were crying on Erev Tisha B'Av. Erev Tisha B'Av. So who invented Tisha B'Av? According to the Gemara. Who invented it? The people who rejected Eretz Yisrael. The people who listened to the Miraglim. And they weren't so much that they listened to something specific, but they decided that it was impossible. They wouldn't be able to go to Eretz Yisrael. He says, Amar lahem HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Gemara ends. Amar lahem HaKadosh Baruch Hu. What does that mean? You know what Amar lahem HaKadosh Baruch Hu means? It means, it wasn't in the original plan. Amar lahem HaKadosh Baruch Hu. There's a reaction in heaven. Those of you who know, study Hasidus, in any way understand that what we do affects the plan. It's, it's noted in heaven. It's not as though uh, it's not as though that what we do has no effect on things. You see that line, the next to the last line. In other words, Tisha B'Av, what we call Tisha B'Av, is a function of the rejection of Eretz Yisrael. When was Eretz Yisrael rejected? After the story of the spies, the Miraglim. The Miraglim easily convinced Am Yisrael that they shouldn't go to Eretz Yisrael. Am Yisrael felt that they were in a bind, and they cried for no reason at all. They cried for no reason because HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, go to Eretz Yisrael. I mean, obviously, if God tells you to go, it's going to be good. They cried. And so the Gemara said, crying created Tisha B'Av. When did they cry? Tisha B'Av. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, you're crying for nothing. You'll cry for something. And that doesn't mean that because of A, there was Tisha B'Av, but it means that if Tisha if the need to drive you out of Eretz Israel comes up, it's going to be on that day. Because you created the day. B'nai Yisrael created the day of Tisha B'Av. So that legitimately, or really, the day called Tisha B'Av has two aspects to it. One is the rejection of Eretz Israel. And the other, the other is the destruction, the punishment of the destruction of Beit HaMikdash and exile. Exile is the rejection of Eretz Yisrael, is it not? 
I mean, it's not true that those who destroyed the national entity called Am Yisrael had to exile the Jewish people. The Assyrians didn't have to, act, uh, to, to exile the Jewish people in 722 BCE. And the Babylonians, you know about Babylonians? The Babylonians did not have to exile the Jewish people in 586 BCE. They didn't have to. They didn't have to. But it was Tisha B'Av. And what's the Midah, Keneged Midah, of rejecting Eretz Israel, Being thrown out of Eretz Israel. So we don't know this for sure, but it seems to me that the punishment that B'nai Yisrael brought upon themselves in Tisha B'Av number 1 and Tisha B'Av number 2, right, talking about 586 B.C., Tisha B'Av number 1, that's the Tisha B'Av Yirmiyahu Anavi, right, the Tisha B'Av Yirmiyahu Anavi, Tisha B'Av number 1 and Tisha B'Av number 2 is the rejection of Am Yisrael by the Romans, the destruction of the Temple, B'nai Yisrael are driven out again, because it's Tisha B'Av. The punishment was decided by the Miraglim, the spies, and the people who listened to them. They're the ones who created the, the punishment of, of, of exile. Didn't have to be. Didn't have to work out that way. And the punishment of exile was disastrous because even though the exile of 586 BCE ended in how many years? Let's say 50. 50 years is not such a long time, but you know that we lost 10 tribes in the deal. Gone. The 10 tribes were exiled from Eretz Israel in 722 BCE by the Assyrians. Right? The Ashurim. The Assyrians. And those 10 tribes and that exile, that exile was the end for the 10 tribes. They're no longer the 10 tribes. They don't exist. And even though there are people who think they can find or smell a little bit of the ten tribes here or there, the other place, but there is no real evidence. They're gone. They are gone. So that Am Yisrael, Am Yisrael rejected Eretz Yisrael, and the punishment was that Eretz Yisrael rejected Am Yisrael. And the fact is, I mean, it's true that it says in the Tochachah that Eretz Yisrael will reject them. It's all true. But the date, the date was created by Am Yisrael. The idea is in the Torah. But the date itself was created by Am Yisrael. Uh, it seems to me, even though I'm not able to think this true, true in an absolutely perfect way, but it seems to me, that modern Jewish history is to some extent an attempt to reverse what happened with the Miraglim and what happened with Am Yisrael. And while it's true that the return to Eretz Yisrael is a very confusing event, different kinds of people, different kinds of interests, nevertheless, there is no doubt that about 50% of the remaining nation of Israel has returned to Eretz Israel, And there is no doubt that that 50% people who return to Eretz Israel will not assimilate for a variety of reasons in the way that a majority of the Jews in the diaspora seem to be willing to assimilate. So it seems to me that somehow the, the, the idea of Tisha B'Av should be somewhat ameliorated. Somehow a little less severe, a little less oppressive. And what do I find? I find that Tisha B'Av is clinged to, is held on to, is something that we can't get enough of. Almost. Why is that? Why can't you get enough of Tisha B'Av? So there's a halacha in the Shulchan Aruch. It's an interesting halacha. That on Tisha B'Av, you don't say Tachnun. You know that halacha? Tachnun. Let's remind ourselves what's Tachnun. 
It's the most impo- uh, the most annoying part of davening. <laughs> you disagree? Well, no, no. I mean, they say Shemot Esrei. Every morning, you say Chazor Sashatz. And then you have these, uh, like, endless, almost endless paragraphs about how bad everything is. I don't feel so bad, like, this morning. Uh, say Tachnon. So I say Tachnon. Okay, Tachnon is also an idea. Tachanunim. It's a kind of... I don't want to go into that. I don't go into that. But, I, you know, the halacha is that on Tishabav you don't say Tachnon. Tishabav also don't say Tachnon. You say Tachnon. Now, when don't you say Tachnon? You don't say Tachnon when you're happy. Because Tachnon is annoying. <laughs> so if you're really happy, you don't say Tachnon. Now, what makes you happy? Yantif tomorrow. If you know, it's Yantif tomorrow. I'm not going to say Tachnon today. Because every Jew knows that if you have an obligation of Simcha tomorrow, why not start today? <laughs> why wait till tomorrow? So you won't say Tachnun. Right, Shabbos, you don't say Tachnun. Anytime that they start talking about. Now you know that the, Hasid, the, the Hasidim, I, somebody told me that Boston's a Hasid, you should tell. Is that true? Mm-hmm. Are Hasidim in Boston? <laughs> what? There are many Hasidim as there are Rebbeim. Anyway, Hasidim, they have a different take on it. They say, when are you happy? When uh, you have a yard site for a Rebbe. Maybe your side. You know your side? So that's a happy occasion. Because you know the Rebbe is doing well in heaven. You know, he's like, you know, he's dickering with, uh, with the Rebbeinu Shalom. He's getting us a good deal. The Rebbe. So the, when the Rebbe's your side comes, they drink a little schnapps. And they ate a little uh, sponge cake. You know about sponge cake? It sponges up the Shabbat, the Shabbat, you know, that's why each sponge cake. So, the Rebbe is talking on their behalf, and so they're happy. So the Hasidim found that this was such a good deal that they realized that if you just make a compilation, you'll get a Rebbe per day. <laughs> and so they always say, Tachnun, except when there's a yard side of the Rebbe. And if, uh, somehow they work it out that the Yotz and the Rebbe take place every day. So, not saying Tachnun is connected to being happy. Hasidim also when they have a regular Yotzai, you know, like someone is saying Kaddish for a uh, Yotzai for his father, his mother's Rachman uh, Litzlan. Uh, uh, so, they also don't say Tachnun. Don't say Tachnun. See, the Shukhulam says, Erev Tishabov, uh, Tishabov, you don't say Tachnun. Maybe you don't say Tachnun. What could I possibly be happy about? So the, the Shukhanach says, uh, at the top of the page, at the top of the first page, quotes a Pasuk. A Pasuk from Megillat Eicha. Perik Aleph Pasuk Tetvav. And I have an English translation so that. If I could read either, I'd be in good shape here. Silah kol abirai. Hashem. V'kirbi kara alai mo'ed lishbor bachurai. Gat darach. Gat darach Adonai lebetulot bat Yehuda. So this is like a kind of a... You know, like the, these psukim that the words don't fit with each other. Like, even though you know what the words mean, but you can't figure out what it means. But the important part of the pasuk for our matter are these words. Kara alai mo'ed lishbor bachurai. What is kara alai mo'ed? Lo yodeh. But what could the word mo'ed mean? It's going to be a holiday. What? Yeah, it's going to be a holiday. Kara alai mo'ed. So here's poor Yemiyoh Navi. You don't have to know the Megillah Zechabal Peh. But you know that the first parak is kind of devastating. You know, here's Yemiyoh Navi saying, Oy, 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 it's terrible. It's worse than I ever thought. I couldn't even imagine it. The children, the mothers, the fathers, the nations. It, it's the, the most uh, uh, a pitiful description of the destruction 
of the of of uh, of Yerushalayim that you could imagine. Yirmiyahu and Avi. And in that pasuk he says, "Kra alai moed So what does the translation say? He summoned an assembly. Moed. The word moed means a meeting place. That's what it means. And that's probably what it means in this pasuk. That it's true that the word moed in other places in the Torah means a holiday. Ela moadei Hashem, Hashem tekruotam bemoadai. Which means Moadim, special days, special events. But here it doesn't mean that. And yet the Shulchan Aruch says, listen, Karalai Moed, it's a drosha, a drash, like a different kind of interpretation. I will be called, Mentisha Abav, will be called a Moed, a joyous occasion. A joyous occasion. So that's what the Shulchan Aruch says. The Shulchan Aruch says, here's Yirmiyahu Navi. He's describing Tisha B'Av. He says it's going to be a Moed. Ah, it's going to be a Moed. What are we going to do in advance? We're going to stop saying Tachnu. Stop saying that. This may be like a small thing. But you know, as they say in those television advertisements, like this, sometimes small steps lead to big things. So we're confident. We're confident that Tisha B'Av, that Tisha B'Av is going to be a Moed. It'll be a happy time. It'll be time uh, when uh, you're allowed to learn Torah. Today, we don't learn Torah on Tisha B'Av. Hashem Yisharim Right, that Torah makes us happy. And being happy is like contradicted by Tisha B'Av. I'll be happy at Tisha B'Av. I don't know, but the Tachnun, we don't say because we're dreaming of the happiness of Tisha B'Av. So, I want to uh, let's learn let's learn a parak together in Ezra on the second page. Ezra is a book of the of the Tanakh, right? That it's it's uh, uh, it's noted especially for the fact that nobody learns it, and even people who know Tanakh very well don't know Daniel Ezra Nechemi. Part of the reason that they don't know Daniel Ezra Nechemi is that not much of those books is written in Aramaic. And Aramaic, even for people who learn Gemara, like Aramaic sentences, are very annoying. Because you don't always understand them. It's like Unculus. You know, like Unculus, you'd think people would learn Shnai Mikro of Echotargum with Unculus. But the Gemara, but the Rashi already says, or the Shulchanorach already says, that since nobody understands Unculus, you might as well learn Chumash with Rashi. You know, in order to accomplish the obligation of Shnayim Mikro, therefore Targum, so you might as well learn, you might as well learn Rashi. At least Rashi, you can understand. Or, let's imagine. <laughs> you know, after all, we all went to day schools. Right? So, what can I tell you? I, mean, I also went to day school. I told you that already. Right? But in Brooklyn. Not Brookline, Brooklyn. So the book of Ezra describes the return of the Jews to Eretz Yisrael in 535 BCE. They were given permission to return to Eretz Yisrael by Korish, the king of Persia. In English, they call him Cyrus. C-Y-R-U-S the king of Persia 535 BCE now some places they say it was 536 or 537 or 534 I don't know anything about that I always say 535 it's easy it's an easy number to remember so that's what I say Cyrus gave the Jews permission to go back to Eretz Israel and build the Beit HaMikdash in 535 BCE Cyrus the Persian conquered conquered the Babylonian Empire. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylonia, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylonia, exiled the Jews from Yerushalayim and the rest of Eretz Israel in 586 BCE. So from 586 BCE, exiled to 535 uh, Cyrus let him come back is 50 years. Now don't Tell me it's not. 
50 years. And that's what Yirmiyot HaNavi said. Yirmiyot, the prophet, said 50 years, you're going to come back, and in 50 years they came back. In the book of Ezra, in the book of Ezra, the Aliyot, the various groups that came back to Eretz Yisrael are described. The main groups among them was the Aliyah Zerubavel, Zerubavel, and followed by the Aliyah of Ezra. Besides Zerubavel and Ezra, there's also Shaltiel, there were others, but Zerubavel, it's enough. Since no one learns the book of Ezra, if you only remember two of them, that's good. If you want to look up the, the uh, Ezra, you'll see that there were more. But the two big ones, Zerubavel came back with about 40,000, and Ezra was the final, came back much later, actually, because, you know, the Gemara says that Ezra's Rebbe, the Gemara, says that Ezra's Rebbe was... Good, who said that? Hey, terrific. You want to teach? <laughs> Ezra's Rebbe was Baruch Bandaria. Baruch Bandaria was old. And so Ezra had to wait Ezra had to wait until Barfman Neria died before he came back to Eretz Yisrael. And when he came back to Eretz Yisrael, there were all kinds of problems that he had to deal with because there was a, a certain lack of religious leadership in Eretz Yisrael. You could imagine, you know, like uh, it's not hard to draw the parallels to modern times. But because there was a lack of religious leadership in the earlier Aliyot, there were all sorts of problems that Ezra, when he came, because he had this the stature and the authority to do it. He had to impose certain restrictions on the Jews. For example, a lot of Jews married, there were not so many women, and a lot of Jews married non-Jewish women. A lot of Jews who came from Persia to Eretz Yisrael married non-Jewish women because somehow they figured out that this was the only thing that they could do. There weren't enough Jewish women. And Ezra had to make takhanot against this. He had to solve the problems in different ways. So there's the Aliyah of Zerubbabel and the Aliyah of Ezra. And then finally, finally, who came to Eretz Yisrael? Who, who sort of came to Eretz Yisrael? Nehemiah. Right, do you remember Nehemiah, that name? Now Nehemiah, Nehemiah was a, uh, a career officer in the Persian court. And he had a very high position in the Persian court. And he came to Eretz Yisrael in order to help the Jews because he was a powerful personality politically. He, in order to help the Jews finish building the wall around Yerushalayim and get moving on the Beit HaMikdash and all of, all of those, those things. After 12 years, Nehemiah went back to Eretz Yisrael. Which may be the reason that, uh, that uh, there's some disparaging remarks made about Nehemiah in, uh, in the Gemara. That he's the only one. He came, but he didn't come to stay in Eretz Israel. He came to help us out, right? Like those guys in the Israeli Air Force, you know, came in 48 and then they went wherever they went. So Nehemiah came and helped the Jews build the wall around Yerushalayim and the Beit HaMikdash. And then, after 12 years, he went back to Persia. So those are the names. Zerubbabel, and Ezra, and Nehemiah. Now, one other name I have to tell you, which is an uh, important name to remember, is the name of Haggai. Haggai. Haggai was a Navi. Haggai was a Navi, and Haggai was the Navi of the return to Eretz Yisrael. It was when Zerubbabel went back to Eretz Yisrael. Zerubbabel was the political leader. And there was a Kohen who came with Zerubbabel, whose name was, according to uh, Ezra, his name was Yeshua, or Yehoshua, right? We call it Yehoshua, but the, the, in, the, in the, the Sefer of Ezra, he's called Yeshua. At the same time, Haggai, the Novi, Came to, uh, came to Eretz Israel, And Haggai, his nevuah is in the book of Haggai, which is one of the treyasar, one of the little books of nevuah. And in that book, Haggai exhorts the people to keep building the Beit HaMikdash, to do something, to build the Mizbeach, to get the 
the sacrifice is going because the people said, this is what Haggai said about the people. The people said, we don't have enough money and we're economically strapped. And this is not the time to build edifices. And even the Mizbeach, which doesn't sound like such a great undertaking, was put on hold. And Haggai had to come Chagah had to come and, and encourage them and tell them that this is what they were supposed to do to build the, the, the Mizbeach. And finally they did build the Mizbeach and they started giving the daily sacrifices. Right, Every day there were two sacrifices that were given to Beit HaMikdash, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. We called those sacrifices Tamid. It was sacrifices that were always given. And Chagai pushed that through. He got the people, he got the people to do that. So Haggai was the Navi of the return from uh, exile. So again, we'll, uh, the names, Zerubavel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai. Yeshua, the Kohen, came with Zerubavel. But the names that we have to remember, Zerubavel, Ezra, Nehemiah. But don't think that, again, don't forget that Ezra came much later than Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel came uh, with the first wave. Uh, uh, even though there was uh, another name, but that doesn't matter. He came with the first wave in 535 BCE, and Ezra came 50 years later. I mean, it's not like all pushed together, all, like all the history happened at the same time. But Ezra came much later than Zerubbabel. So now we learned at the third parak of Ezra. Vaidnu kesef lachotzvim velacharashim umachalu mishte b'shemen latzidonim latzorim lavi atze az arazim min halvanon el yam yafo kurishion koresh melech paras otam. So they brought all this stuff. You can look at the English while I'm reading. They brought all this stuff. And you remember that Arzei Halavanon, that in Eretz Yisrael, I don't know if you've noticed, we don't have big trees in Eretz Yisrael. In fact, we have trees that are quite puny. And in, in Yerushalayim, for example, when it snows, and the snow in Yerushalayim is pretty puny itself, generally, it always, the weight of the snow can knock over a tree. Because unlike real trees, the trees in Yerushalayim are not stuck into anything. Because it's hard for the roots of the tree to get past the stone in the ground. So you can't build the Beit HaMikdash with those kinds of trees. Instead, instead, Shlomo HaMelech imported Arzei Halevano. Right, cedars from Lebanon. Because they were, you know, Zaftika trees. They were the real McCoy. And so they did the same thing. They imported all of this stuff. Ubashana Shainit, Livuam el Beit Ha Elokim, Liushalayim, Bachodesha Shaini, Echeluz Rubavel, Ben Shaltiel, Vyashua, Ben Yotzadak. Ushaar Achehem Akoanim Valviim Vicola Baim Mahashvi Yushalayim Viamidu et Halleviim Miben Esrim Shanava Mala Lenatseach Almelechet Beit Hashem. So you have all these names. They were in charge. And they were building. So there was a Kablan, there was a construction boss. And they were workers, and somebody was paying them. Obviously, they all had to live. So this was kind of an undertaking, a national undertaking that took place. We don't see the story behind the story from this chapter. The story behind the story is that Achagai had to be encouraging them all the time because they didn't want to do it. They were afraid that even though they had received permission from Koresh, even though they had received permission that that permission somehow would not be stronger. They had enemies. There were enemies in Eretz Israel trying to stop them. Most notable of these em- enemies were... Which? No, no, no. Shomronim, the Samaritans. 
Samaritans, they lived around Shechem. You know, the Samaritans, they still exist. A few. The Samaritans thought that they were Jewish. You know that, that Sancheriv, Sancheriv, the Assyrian king, he believed that the way to maintain... You know, try to imagine the old days that you're a conqueror. You, each one of you, conquered, conquered the world. But that's easy enough. But how do you keep the world conquered? I mean, what do you do? So this was a problem that the kings in the ancient world had. How do you keep, how do you maintain control over the conquest? Like you have an army, you zip through some nation and you conquer it. But then the people in the army, they all want to go home. They're not going to stay there. Now they say, so, so if they leave, what's going to say that the country is still conquered? As what does conquest mean? It means you get the people in that conquered country to pay you a tax. That's what you want. But how do you keep them? How do you keep them conquered? So Sanchev had this idea. He would transfer populations. He took a nation from here and transferred them to here. And he took the people who live here and he transferred them there. That's how he came up with the idea of the exile. Of the, ten, of the ten tribes. So who did he bring to Eretz Israel? The Samaritans. Where did the Samaritans come from? Apparently from the islands. You know, like around the Greek islands, Cyprus, oh, who knows? Around there someplace. He brought in a population. Now this population was not Jewish. And they lived in the Shomron. What today we call, what you know, what we call Shomron, around Shechem. That's where they lived. Now the Samaritans, the Samaritans uh, um, were attacked by lions. They were attacked by lions. I guess there were lions in Eretz Israel. Today we have terrorists. They had lions. And they all decided the Samaritans all decided that the reason they were being attacked by the lions was because they did not serve the local God, the God of Israel. This is the kind of thinking that people could have at that time. So the Samaritans decided to be Jewish. And the, the Tanakh, they're called Gerei Arayot. There was, they are the converts of the lions. Which means that they didn't really convert. But they accepted upon themselves many of the halachot of the Torah. They accepted it. They said, we're going to be like Jews. We're here and live in Israel. In Israel, you do what the, the people who come from Israel, even though the Jews had been exiled. But I guess there were a few left. And the few who were left were able to... Uh, uh, the few who were left were able to... Um, give them direction, give them instruction. The Gemara Chulin says, what if a, a Samaritan bakes a matzah for Pesach? Are you allowed to use it? Are we Jews allowed to use the Samaritan matzahs? It's a question the Gemara Chulin. The answer, surprisingly, is yes. Because the Gemara says that they were very careful about making matzahs. And they did them to our specifications. They made the matzahs. So we can eat their matzahs on Pesach. The same thing is true about Shechita. The Gemara says that they were very careful about Shechita. And therefore, we could imagine that if they shechted a cow, that it was done properly, and we can eat the meat. That's Samaritans. These are Samaritans. So the Samaritans came to the Jews in 535 BCE. Remember that date? 535 BCE. And they said, let's do it together. We'll build a Beit HaMikdash. We'll build a wall around Yerushalayim. Let's do it together. So the Jews said, no. This Beit HaMikdash is for the Jewish people. And the Samaritans out there, and then somehow this evolved into a long-standing feud between the Jews and the Samaritans who said they were Jews. Right? And this feud went on for many, many, many years in the Second Temple period. This resulted in the Samaritans trying to confuse the Jews about Rosh Chodesh. Remember that? They would light fires on the wrong day and the fires would go. That was the Samaritans. The Samaritans did that. The Samaritans did that and they were, um, and therefore they were the enemy. 
mean, there's no doubt about that, that they were the, they were the enemies of the Jews who built the Beit HaMikdash and building, building the Mizbeach. So now, it wasn't so easy. That's what I wanted to, to say. It wasn't like the Jews came back to Eretz Israel they had this letter from Cyrus and they said, okay, let's start building. It wasn't so easy. They had internal problems. Their problems were that they didn't have enough money and they weren't uh, economically well, uh, well off and they, their people thought that maybe they should do it that way. They should make some money first. And the other problem was the Samaritans who became the enemies of the Jews because they were identified by the Jews as being non-Jews, even though they acted very much like the Jewish people. Right? So this is like, a, like an odd situation. So odd situation, I don't want to make a, a, a literary comparisons that may not be worthy, but you know, in Eretz Yisrael today, there are many olim who are not halachically Jewish, but who act at, in exactly the same way as many non-religious Israelis act. Right? In other words, if you wanted a, if you, if you were not a halachic person and you wanted to define what a Jew is, and you went to Israel, so you say a Jew, like somebody who speaks Hebrew, someone who goes to the army, somebody who uh, doesn't work on Shabbat, but you have that kind of definition. And all these people fit into that definition. Right, so now there's a, a battle of definitions that goes on all the time, which is not such something that is particularly annoying in, in America, but in Eretz Yisrael, it's a real problem. I can't solve that problem right now. Pasuk Tet, thank you. Vayamod Yeshua Banav Ve'echav Kadmielu Banav Bnei Yehuda Okay, so what happened? Okay, so so here it says, what did they do? The Leviim, they played music, they blew on, on trumpets, and they had you know, tinkling kind of sounds that came out of in- other instruments, and they sang to Hillen. They sang to Hillen. What should they do? Vayanu b'halel uvehodot l'Hashem kitov kile olam chazdog. You know what that is? Hodol l'Hashem kitov kile chazdog. We call that halel hagadol. We say it in the Haggadah. I'm going to say it every Shabbos, but we say it in the Haggadah because it's it's more than halel, right? It's halel, but halel hagadol. We say both on the night of, of Pesach, and here it says that that's what they were singing. It was, there was a, like something happened. So you know that we, they, they say um, that, that the Masad, the base of the Mizbeach, from the Beit HaMikdash, it was still there. It was, it was the Beit the, the Mizbeach, the, the altar was built on a cement floor. And when they destroyed the Beit HaMikdash, the Babylonians, they destroyed the cement floor. You know, it's like an old building, old building falls down, so there, so there are things that are left. One of the things that were left was this cement floor. So it was nothing to build the Beit HaMikdash, and here they're singing and dancing, and they're happy. Listen to this. Uh, uh, what pasuk we up to? You'd bet. You'd bet. The rabbim, me'akohanim v'alviim v'rashei avod v'askenim, asher ra'ut abayit harishon biyasdoze abayit be'inehem bochim bekol gadol. The rabbim betrua besimcha laharim kol. Imagine. Imagine 
they're blowing on the trumpets. They're playing musical instruments. They're singing howlah. They're singing howlah because they just built the Beit HaMikdash with the Mizbeach. They just built the, the altar. And what's happening at the same time? What's happening at the same time? Whatever that means. I mean, how old would they have to be? How old would they have to be? 80, 90? Like people who were around who saw Bayetri shown. Who saw the first temple, what did they see? The people who saw the first temple, the temple of Shlomo Amalek, what did they see? They saw poverty. They saw inability. They saw poor uh, execution. What are they looking at? What are they looking at? They're looking at the Mizbeach. They just built the Mizbeach. But you know, when you build something, it's like your mind works in tricky ways. So most of the people who had never seen the Beit HaMikdash had never been in Yerushalayim before they came back now through Bavel and, and Yeshua Kohen. Those people were singing and dancing in the streets. This is the most wonderful thing that happened. It was the prophecy of Yirmiyahu come true. It was with the aid of Koresh Melech, of Koresh Melech Paras. It was a wonderful event. And they were singing and dancing in the streets. But those who were there before the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, the ones who saw the glory of the temple of uh, Shlomo HaMelech, not exactly, but you know, even Herod, his additions to the temple, and his development of the temple, it was glorious. It was glorious. They looked at this Mizbeah, so small, insignificant by comparison, unreal. They were all crying. They were crying because they even thought that they hadn't gotten very far. Or because there was such a long way to go. Or because there was simply no way to compare what there had been to what there is now. So you see from the chapter in Ezra that joy that events in history are understood radically differently by people who have different visions and views of that history. You have to understand, the book of Ezra says, that if you have a long-range historical view of things, and you know that there was the Bayatri shown of Shlomo HaMelech, and then there was the Bayat Sheini, which was being built now, we all know that there's no comparison. You know, the Mishnah in, uh, the Mishnah in Pirkei Avot says there were ten miracles that took place every day in the first temple, but not in the second temple. It means, like, so, so what are you looking at? That's always the question. What are you looking at? Are you looking at the half cup that's filled? Are you saying we were just in the diaspora and now we're in Eretz Yisrael? Are you saying we were just disfranchised from religious independence in Persia and now we have an independent position? We can decide for ourselves. We can do what we have to do. Is that what you see? Or do you say... Oh no, we're still in the diaspora. We still haven't succeeded. We still have not really begun to accomplish what we had or to do what we had before. So history, even if you know the facts on the ground, is not a clear thing. It's not something that you could always say, I know what's happening. I may know certain information but I don't know what that information might mean. And so that it makes sense that some people were crying and some people were laughing. Because the laughter is reasonable. 
but the crying is also reasonable. And it depends who you are, and we need both kinds of people. We need those people who are optimistic and who say, wow, look what we've done, which is like one of the ways people look at Eretz Yisrael today. They say, look what they've done. I won't get into that. <laughs> but look what they've done. But other people say, look what we dreamed about. Are we there? Have we fulfilled the dream? And both people are right. And the, the difficulty is that we always have is in learning from each other. So what is the what is the Shukhanar say? The Shukhanar says, you know, there's a hint in the in the Pasuk, Karu Alaimo Aid, that Tishaba not that it will be joyous, but that there is a joyous element to the notion that the exile will come to an end. That we'll be together at Eretz Yisrael. Has it happened? It hasn't happened. Now, I think that everybody has to kind of think about these aspects. I think we're, we're good at that. We know about that. That things are not necessarily clear. And that the lack of clarity is not necessarily a disadvantage. So I think it's important uh, to learn keynote on Tisha B'Av. And you know what learning keynote on Tisha B'Av, Lulay Mistafino, if I had the opportunity, I would ask Rabbi Salavechik, but isn't it learning Torah? Isn't it doing what we're not supposed to do on Tisha B'Av? I mean, after all, what do you think, Rabbi Salavet, you could have a conversation about Tisha B'Av and not make it into Torah? I mean, what kind of idea is that? Okay, so you can make a dray. There's Torah A and Torah B and Torah C, but really? Really, what are you doing when you sit and learn keynote? You're thinking about the Torah, you're looking at the Torah. Okay, the Shodor says, you're allowed to learn the things that make you unhappy. You know, they would say, Rav Chaim Brisker said, I don't know, there's nothing like that in the Torah. What's going to make me unhappy? How can you have Torah that's not happy? Uh, okay. So they say, well, don't learn it too deeply. Don't learn it too effectively. Nah. They're learning Torah. All these people who are learning keynote. They're all learning Torah because they are delving into the matter. They're delving into the matter. So it means here the Shulchan says, don't say Tachma, because there's joy there. There's joy there. Something ended. The destruction of the temple happened, but it also ended. And now we're, re- we're ready for the rebuilding of the temple. Yes, you can't learn Torah, but you have to learn Torah. You, know, you have to. So, so learn certain Torah, but don't learn other Torah. So that really, Tisha B'Av, is not a dead-end day. It's not a day that, that has no optimism. If you remember the Megillah of Eichah, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, devastating. Chapter 5. Can you imagine Am Yisrael get kicked out of Eretz Yisrael? The temple is destroyed. This is the worst possible scenario you can imagine. And then Yerbi looks up with the voice of Am Yisrael and he says, like he has a demand. He still has a demand. So there's no way that I can understand Tisha B'Av without this interlocking notion. It's terrible. It's bad. We deserve what we got. But we know that it's going to be better. We know Kirulai Mo'ed. We know that there's going to be a Mo'ed. And we know, we know absolutely, because we will learn Torah. We're going to push Torah into Tishabov. It'll be Mutter. We'll do it away with Mutter, but it'll be Torah. We'll learn it. We'll learn the Torah. We'll learn the Shulchan Aruch. We'll learn the, we'll learn Eicha. What's the difference in learning Eicha on Tisha B'Av and learning Eicha on Tuesday? Is there a difference? 
You get up in the morning and say, Birka Satara, you're not going to learn the Echa, why not? So that there's got to be, and there is, you see, an optimistic side. And optimism doesn't mean that you ignore your responsibility or that, you're, uh, that you kind of make believe that it never happened. Because you know, it all depends on how well you're able to see things. Some people danced and sang and said Hallel when the Mizbeach was built by Zerubbabel. But other people looked at the Mizbeach that they had built and they cried because they understood that the path was very, very long and arduous that they would have to that they'd have to take. So, I leave you with this idea that even Tisha B'Av has a variation of themes that we have to accommodate within ourselves on that day. And I think that learning Kinos is a wonderful thing because it's sort of learning Torah and it's sort of coming to grips with Jewish history and it sort of tells us you know, the middle of the day we sing remember? and we sing it and it's a song and songs are usually happy I mean it's a lot happier to sing than to sort of like just mumble it so that's the minhag the minhag is you sing it like the people in Ezra were singing about the building of the Mizbeach. And we're singing about the hope for the building of the Mizbeach, but the hope is real. The hope is real. And in our times, there's so many of the Tfilot of Am Yisrael have been answered. You know, 2,000 years of Tfilot, and here we are, you know. You go, you go Friday night to the Kotel, if you want. You just go. Monsi Shabbos, you get a free bus ride back home. You know what that's like? You feel like a king, you know. You go to the Kotel, the Davimarev, and then you get on a bus, and you say, Get Shabbos, or like Shavuot Tov, and that's it. You're, you're in. I said, somebody else wants, you know, I have a, this out, a postscript. You know, I have a, um, I have an interest in art. I like art. So the first time I went, really went to a museum was in, in Holland, in Amsterdam. Amsterdam is a museum, the Rijksmuseum. Very nice museum. And in the Rijksmuseum, there's uh, the Night Watch. Mm-hmm. The Night Watch is in a big room. It's the only painting hung in the room. And even if you don't know anything about painting... Um, it's hard not to be impressed there. Yeah, obviously, you see, like there's this painting hanging there, and it's in a tremendous room, and it's overwhelming, overwhelming for me at the time. But you know, I, just, I didn't go to see the night watch, so I didn't know anything about painting. But I heard, I heard that on Shabbos, if you go to the guard at the door and you say you just have to pay to get into the museum, if you say it's Shabbos, he lets you in. I couldn't believe this was true. <laughs> so I went. That's how I got to my first museum trip. I went and I said to the guard, Shabbos. And he said, Go ahead. You know, so I went in. So I saw the night watch. I say, Is it, You think that's a big deal? The fact that Eget gives out free trips to Jews after buying my child—that's really a big deal. Because the Goyim Melech, they can sometimes be nice to the Jews, but the Jews don't want to ever be nice to the other Jews. <laughs> so it's a, so a lot of things. A lot of things have happened, and then a lot of things have come true. And I think it's reasonable to sing and dance about them, but it's also reasonable to think about what hasn't yet been done, what hasn't yet been accomplished. And that's the training you get on Tishabov. Tishabov certainly cannot be thought of as the end of Jewish history. But it's a point in Jewish history that has to be redeemed. And I guess we'll have to redeem it, right? Have a, a wonderful 
What's coming up? Shabbos? No, not yet. You can't say good Shabbos till Wednesday. That's what they taught me. Hasidim. You know, I have I come from a Hasidish family. So on Wednesday morning after after the Shir Shal Yom, you say Lachunaranano. So Wednesday mornings when you start pay, preparing for Shabbos, when you say Lachunaranano. So I wish you all well. Thank you uh, for listening. It was a pleasure to be here. I'm leaving these cards here. And since I don't want the uh, hosts to have any problems, please take one. It's a card that tells you how to get in touch with the Web Yeshiva, which is, as I, I'm sure you know, is a great idea. All the best. Before anybody... Sorry. Forget class. Before anybody oh boy. Moves, Where's my phone? Okay. Better and better. Before anybody moves, I would like to ask, uh, we'd like to have a Marv Minion, uh, so people haven't, haven't.